0: You're listening to a podcast from New Heights Church. We hope you're encouraged to glorify, grow, and go. We're going to be continuing in our sermon series. Uh, we've been going through the book of Mark for some time now. And uh, this morning's a little bit of an, of an interesting story. It's like the, uh, if you guys have watched TV shows, there's, there's always this one episode or this one show where when it ends, you're kind of confused at, at where it left off. It didn't really leave off with anything. Um, A lot of times TV shows leave off with a cliffhanger, right, to to get you to play that next episode at 2 a.m. And uh, this morning is similar to that. We see here, we're going to see in the story, um, where the elders of the city, the Sanhedrin if you will, begin to question Jesus' authority, and Jesus responds with a question that just leaves them speechless. And so if you have your Bibles, um, whether it be a Bible or a phone, go ahead and turn it on, and we're going to be in Mark Chapter 11 this morning, starting in verse 27 through 33, and it should be on the screen behind me as well if you don't have your Bibles. Let's go ahead and read the text. It says, and they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him, and they said to him, by what authority are you doing these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question. If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Verse 30, Jesus' question says, Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. They discuss it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he's going to say, Why did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people. For they all held that John really was a prophet. So they answered Jesus, we do not know. Jesus replied to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Let's go ahead and pray and we'll dive in. God, we thank you for being able to come together to open up your word freely without worry of persecution. That we can read this text that you've preserved over thousands of years for us. God, I pray that you, you take what we read, that you apply it to our life, God, that you... You make us and mold us more into the image of your son, that we could glorify you, that we could honor you with everything we do in our life. It's your name we pray. Amen. So I got two points this morning. If you're a note taker, the first is going to be submit to godly authority. And then the second is fear God, not man. And so the individuals in this story that, that comes to Jesus, the elders of the city, the chief priests, the scribes, These are what we would know as the Sanhedrin. Uh, The Sanhedrin was the group of individuals that would ultimately be responsible for the crucifixion of Jesus that would lead to Jesus' death. These are the individuals who not only held authority politically in the area, but also religiously. And so you can see why they're concerned about what's going on with Jesus here, right? Jesus over the past 11 chapters has started to show different roles of authority, and now the question for them is, if Jesus takes authority, where does that leave them? So you can see them fearing for their position of power, fearing that they might lose control of the people, if you will. And so this, the Sanhedrin was the authority in Jerusalem and Israel at this time, and so we see why they questioned the authority of Jesus. So Mark eleven twenty seven 27 through 28, we'll read that again. says, And they came again to Jerusalem, and as he was walking in the temple, the chief priests, the scribes, and the elders came to him and said to him, By what authority do you do these things? Or who gave you the authority to do them? So we're going to look at authority and submitting to godly authority. And, and I think when we take a look at authority in our life, it takes place in multiple different forms. Whether it be at home with our kids, whether it be at work with our, our boss, or if you are the boss with your employees, Whether it be um, in home with our husband and our wife, we see Scripture talk about authority and submission to authority in multiple different ways, and all of us at some point in our life has questioned authority over us. For me, it happens to be when I get pulled over, right? I don't directly uh, argue with the cop, but when I leave, I call Leslie and give a thousand reasons why the cop shouldn't have pulled me over. And hopefully some of you guys are with me on that one. But... So all of us, in some way, shape, or form, tends to question authority, whether we want to admit it or not. And sometimes it's okay to question authority, right? If we're trying to stand up for what's right, we're standing up for what God says rather than maybe what government says. And so the motive behind questioning authority will always determine whether or not questioning authority is right or wrong. I think of my my kids in, in this scenario, right? Nobody had to teach my kids to question my authority. They naturally did it because as much as I love my kids, they're depraved sinners. Um, typically what ends up happening is if, if Cade does something he's not supposed to, if he steals a toy from his brother, we tell him to go into his room, and we put him in time out for a couple minutes. And as he walks off, he begins crying and yelling, and he goes and he sits on his bed. A couple minutes later, we'll come in and we'll talk to him, and we'll try to explain to him why you can't just take a toy from your brother how you have to love your brother more than you love your toys, right? And now the, uh, the, the walk to the room has changed. It is not simply him obeying me and going to the room, sitting on his bed. Uh, it becomes this statement now that he says, as he's walking, he yells out as he's bawling and crying, but I didn't do anything wrong. He doesn't understand it, and that is him questioning my authority, right? It is not wrong for me to take the toy from my brother, if you will. So I go in and I talk to him and I explain to him why it's important that he listens to us. Because we're trying to teach him something greater, right? And so we see that, that I didn't have to teach my son how to do that. Questioning authority, both in my son and in my life and in everyone here, is in our very nature. And so most of the time we see questioning authority is simply a response and a desire to somehow feed our selfish gain. Whether it be financially, right, for me, when I get pulled over, questioning authority is I want out of that ticket so I don't have to pay it. Or maybe questioning authority can mean if we question authority, that might lead to some sort of promotion at work. And so the question becomes is what are the motives of questioning authority? For the Sanhedrin here in the story, we see that their motive was to protect their own power. See, Jesus' authority that's being displayed all throughout Mark is now against the Sanhedrin. The Sanhedrin is fearing that the power is is being pulled from them and more towards Jesus. I think all of us begin to question authority uh, when we think of the IRS, right? The IRS sends us a bill. We owe taxes every year. We look at it, and we go, this is my money. You have no authority to take it. But yet if they send us a stimulus check, we say thank you, right? And so we're reminded here of our depravity that the motive behind questioning authority is oftentimes selfish, if we're being honest. Selfish interest is our default, but we see here in the text that submission is godly. We see this all throughout Scripture, and it applies to everyone. Ephesians 6 talks about children submitting to parental authority, right? Ephesians 6 verse 1 says, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is right. We see in Ephesians 5, it, it talks about wives submitting to the authority of their husbands. It says, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Later on in Ephesians 6, it says, bond servants, obey your earthly masters with fear and trembling, with a sincere heart as you would Christ. And so we see the submission that employees have to their bosses. We see citizens are called to submit to the authority of the government, whether we like it or not. Romans 13 deals with that. 13 verse 1 says, Let every person be subject to the governing authorities, for there is no authority except from God, and those that exist have been instituted by God. If you are a member of New Heights Church, we see that covenant people submit to the authority of the church. Hebrews 13, verse 17 says, Obey the leaders, obey your leaders and submit to them. For they are keeping watch over your souls, as those will have to give an account. Let them do this with joy, not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. So if we're honest, we know that those examples covers everyone here, right? Everyone here submits to someone somewhere. And so we see here in the text, godly submission is God-glorifying, whereas questioning, questioning authority often leads to some form of selfish gain. We see in roles of submission, even as we see Jesus Um, having the authority. We also see Jesus as our example of submission. Right? Look at the prayer that Jesus has in the Garden of Gethsemane. When Jesus cries out to the Father, not my will, but yours be done. So we see Jesus as our ultimate example in everything, including submission. We see him submit to the will of the Father, the purpose of why Jesus came to the earth, to ultimately carry out the will of the Father. So submission is not natural, for honest it's not easy, but let us see that it is godly. So now that we, we all know commonly that we're called to submit, it's understandable why Jesus in this time, this new authority if you will, is starting to raise some eyebrows here in Jerusalem. So what Jesus has done would, would certainly raise concern with the Sanhedrin. Right? Let's, look at, let's, let's take a look at, at what we have seen Jesus do so far that the Sanhedrin would be scared. So we've been going through the book of Mark, so let's, let's kind of backtrack a little bit. We see in Mark chapter 1, verse 22, we see Jesus' authority in teaching. It says, And they were astonished at his teaching, for he taught them as one who had authority and not as the scribes. So we see later on in Mark chapter 3, Jesus' authority over the spiritual realm. It says in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 14 through 15, it says, And he appointed twelve, whom he also named apostles, so that they might be with him, and he might send them out to preach and have authority to cast out demons. Mark 2 talks about Jesus' authority to forgive sins. Verses 10 and 11 says, But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And so in these 11 chapters that we've covered so far in the book of Mark, we see that Jesus has supreme authority. He has expressed this. He has demonstrated this authority time after time after time. And now the idea that this authority is taking over is scaring the daylights out of the Sanhedrin. And so their response is to question the authority. If we could somehow get Jesus to admit that he is God that we could crucify him, right? We can get rid of this power that's threatening our power. And although we have seen Scripture make it clear that there are people above us at work, at home, in government that we are called to submit to, we see here in the text and we're reminded here in the text that before we submit to anyone else, we submit first and foremost to God. So if any submission to authority in our life trumps the submission to God... It's not right. And so we're asked, who have we given our allegiance to before we've given it to Christ? Who have we bowed down to, if you will, before we've bowed down to Christ? Our spouse? Have we placed our spouse in a role that replaces Jesus? Do we strive to worship our spouse over God? Nobody would come out and, and say that. But if we look at our actions, what do we truly see? What about our work or our boss? I think we live in a time in which success in work is is valued very highly. Sometimes we submit to our job above our Christ. We put off things that can be God-glorifying to conform to what the job needs in order to move up the corporate ladder, if you will. Now, what I'm not saying here is that it's it's wrong to be good at your, your job right? Scripture says whatever you do, do to the glory of God. And so it is a good thing for you to do your job well and honor Christ in it. The question is, is if you care more about your job and moving up than God, there's an issue. Where is Jesus in the mix? Are you moving up to glorify God by working hard? Are you moving up to pat yourself on the back? And I'll be honest, this is probably the toughest one for me. I work with Brent and Ashley, so they see me every day, And they could tell you that there is not a single person at Verizon that wants to be number one more than me. And so as I read this, I I have to check myself and repent in the fact that me moving up or being the best in sales at Verizon should not be so that Ashley and Brent can see my success, right? Hopefully it's I want to have a good work ethic so that I can glorify God through my work. What about our kids? This is another tough one. Do we find our identity in our children, in their success, in their enjoyment? Do we place their happiness above their holiness? Do we spend more time in making them the best at sports, at education? Do we care more about their success than their salvation? And again, everything I'm saying here is not to say that everyone should simply come to church, go home, read the Bible, pray and fast, right? I'm not saying that. What I'm saying is find what your kids love to do and glorify God in them. Find the the sports that your kids love to do and somehow share the gospel to others whenever they're playing those sports. I grew up going to Calvary, and uh, I had a teacher who was my teacher, my pastor, my basketball coach, my soccer coach. Uh, Many of you guys might know him. His name is Jeff Hurst. Um, He used to be the pastor at Calvary. He now moved to Pennsylvania and pastoring a Presbyterian church down there. And if there is one person that knew how to leverage everything for the gospel, it was Jeff. I can't think of a single soccer trip that I wasn't sitting in the front of the van driving two hours to Parkersburg to go play in a tournament, that Jeff would somehow bring up the idea of, hey, is it okay to drink Coke and crackers for communion and he would tie something back to some theological discussion during halftime I remember going uh setting we might be down we might be up it don't matter he would somehow use soccer to glorify God he would come up with some example to tie soccer back to the gospel and that's what I'm trying to explain here it's not wrong to want to do things it's not what it's not wrong to want to move up in the corporate ladder but where is Jesus at in the mix of it A famous theologian most of you guys have probably heard of, Charles Spurgeon, he has a famous quote. He said, I intend to smoke a good cigar to the glory of God tonight before I go to sleep. And that's to point that there are tons of freedoms that we have in Christ, and it's okay to enjoy those, enjoy them to the glory of God. Thank God that we have legs that we can run and play soccer. And so we see submit to godly authority in all areas. But we submit to God's authority first and foremost. Our second point: fear God, not man. We see fear of man is, is a powerful thing. For honest, we constantly worry about what other people's going to think of us. Is what I'm wearing okay? I'm, I'm not the best dress at all. If I'm not preaching, I'm usually like in sweatpants. Um. But, but I, in what in what ways I think we have to check ourselves? Do we fear? rejection? Do we fear man more than we fear God? Do we avoid sharing the gospel out of fear of rejection? Do we, feel, do we fear failure in our job, so we don't take that risk? We take the comfortable path rather than the path that might work for the glory of God. And so we all fall in some sort of category of fear of man because we're reminded of our depravity. We see here a great example in the Sanhedrin of what fear of man truly looks like. So we see the Sanhedrin is questioning the authority of of Jesus here. And their response to Jesus' question was out of fear of man, not a desire to honor God. They feared the people of Israel, and they wanted to remain in control of them. And so their answer is, I don't know. Let's take a look at the text again, Mark 11, 29 through 30. Jesus said to them, I will ask you one question If you answer me, I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Was the baptism of John from heaven or from man? Answer me. So Jesus points back to John. John at this time had already been executed. And Jesus' question puts him in a very difficult spot. They begin talking to themselves, we see in the text. And you have about 71 people in the Sanhedrin here. I just imagine as Jesus answers this, they all like turn around and start whispering to each other. And they begin to, to think, why is, what, what question is Jesus asking? What's this going to do, right? So they start talking about it and they realize if we say that John's baptism was from heaven, by default, we are admitting that Jesus is the Messiah, right? Because John prophesied that Jesus was the Messiah. So they can't say yes. But if they say no, then the people of Israel is going to be ticked off because they valued John the Baptist as a prophet. So they're in a tough situation. Do they admit that John was who he said he was, that he was a prophet, that his baptism was from heaven, and by default now claim Jesus as Messiah? By no means. They can't do that, right? They would lose the authority that they valued so greatly. But at the same time, they can't say no. Because they're going to lose the authority that they valued greatly. So instead, their fear of man left them in silence. So Jesus' question puts them in a very tough situation. We see the book of Mark begins the gospel by referencing how John the Baptist fulfilled the Old Testament. The last book of the Old Testament, the book of Malachi, chapter 3, verse 1, said, Behold, I send my messenger... And he will prepare the way before me, and the Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, he is coming, says the Lord of hosts. Malachi 4 verse 5 says, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And so the Sanhedrin knew, obviously, that the answer was that John's baptism was from heaven. The Old Testament prophesied it. The man of Elijah was fulfilled in the man of John the Baptist. He was the final prophet that led into the Messianic line. And so Jesus pointing and asking this question, pointing out that John was the final prophet, unfolded the Messianic timeline. We see here scripture multiple times in the New Testament states the idea that the kingdom of God was at hand. Jesus, Jesus has issued in the Messianic timeline that had been prophesied all about throughout the entire Old Testament. And the Sanhedrin, had they answered the question correctly, would by default be admitting the authority that Christ has that would be greater than their authority. And so by no means would they be able to admit that because they don't want to lose the power that they have. So instead they question Jesus' authority for some sort of selfish gain. And their response is a fear of man. Rather than a fear of God. So John had identified Jesus as a Messiah. Mark eleven, thirty-one through thirty-two. It says, and they discussed it with one another, saying, If we say from heaven, he will say, Why then did you not believe me? Why did why then did you not believe him? But shall we say from man? For they were afraid of the people, for all they or for they all held that John really was a prophet. And so this has, this has put the Sanhedrin in an impossible position and has ultimately paralyzed them out of their fear of man. Their fear kept them in silence. My son has this opposite approach. Um, instead of being silent when he's scared, um, he tends to try to talk his way out of things. A- and uh, it was the, the other day, we were he just got done using the bathroom, and he runs into the room, and he wants to play hide-and-seek. So me and him get under the blanket, we're hiding from mom. And I guess when you're in a blanket, you begin to confide in the person you're with and starts to begin telling his secrets and showing his poker hand a little bit more. And he, st- he tells me he just got done using the bathroom, and I'm like, that's awesome, good job, right? He goes, yeah, but I peed on the floor a little bit. He goes, but it's an, it was an accident. And I'm like, oh, it's okay, it was just an accident, you didn't mean to. He goes, yeah, I say that all the time. And I go, what do you mean? He goes, any time I do something that might upset someone else, I say it's an accident so they don't get mad at me. And I'm like, that's pretty smart. And uh, so he begins to tell me, anytime he's with his friends and he does something, if he's playing with Maddox and he does something, if he pees on the floor and he does something, if he takes a toy, he knows, or at least he thinks he knows, that all he has to do is plead innocence. If I say it was an accident, they'll understand, Right? But here in the story, we see instead that their fear left them in complete silence. They didn't know what to say. They couldn't answer either or. And so we see here that submission does not always mean fear, but fear always means submission. So godly submission does not necessitate that you're fearful of who you submit to, right? Wives are submit to their husbands. Hopefully, they do not fear their husbands. We are supposed to submit to our boss. Hopefully, we are not, we're not fearful of our boss. The church is, submit, is to submit to the elders of the church. Hopefully, we don't fear our pastors. However, we see fear will always lead to submission. The opposite is true. You will submit to what you're scared of. Think of it. If you're fearful of heights, you're going to stay on the ground rather than go up. If you're fearful of rejection, you're going to put up walls in your life to make sure that that rejection doesn't happen. And so we see that our actions are responses to our fears. And so the question becomes, if our actions are responsible to our fears, do we see our actions more as man-pleasing or God-glorifying? If you look up the most common fears in America, you have 51% of Americans are afraid of snakes. I fall in that 51%. I do not like snakes. And if you know me, you know I will run away from a wasp. So I fall in that fear. We see 40% are afraid of public speaking. We also see 36% of people are afraid of heights. So that means out of the 60 people in here, 20% or 20 of you guys are scared of your church name. And so we're reminded that, that we must not let fear of temporal things. Fear of man, fear of rejection, keep us from submitting to the eternal plans. And so we see throughout Scripture examples of overcoming fear for God's glory. In Proverbs chapter 29, verse 25 says, For the, uh, the fear of man lays a snare, but whoever trusts in the Lord is safe. We see the apostles would ultimately live out this truth, not in their own ability, but rather emboldened by the Holy Spirit. We see Acts chapter five, verse 29 says, but Peter and the apostles answered, we must obey God rather than men. And so we see the apostles would ultimately act differently than the Sanhedrin there. Where the pillars of Israel, the Sanhedrin, the authority in Israel, the religious authority, the political authority submitted to their fears, we see the pillars of God's church, the apostles would ultimately submit to God alone. If you look at the submission to God, the fear of God and the apostles, you'll see that the overwhelming pouring out of God's grace in their life and in the lives of many people that they've seen will ultimately drown out this fear of man to the point in which 11 of them die persecuted for their faith. You look at Peter who... As, as he's being persecuted and being put to death, his fear of God was greater than the fear of man, so much so that he says, don't crucify me the same way of Christ. Crucify me upside down. I'm unworthy to die the same death that Christ died. And so we see that the apostles, empowered by the Holy Spirit, believed in the fact that they are called to live for God rather than man. Mark 11, verse 33 says, So they answered Jesus, We do not know. Jesus said to them, Neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. Now, normally, we're not going to tell you to uh, imitate the Pharisees, the Sanhedrin. But the one thing that they did well here was they said, We don't know. And so we see and we're reminded that submission to God's plan often begins with us yielding control, saying, We don't know. I don't have the answer. I can't fix myself. Instead, we yield to the sovereignty of God rather than the power of ourself. We don't know what's best. We don't know what's to come. We can't trust our, the instincts of our flesh because we're reminded that we're depraved. We would be doing the same thing as the Sanhedrin. We do the same thing as the Sanhedrin. We fear man more than God oftentimes in our life. We question authority rather than submitting to godly authority in our life. And so if we're honest, if I'm honest, I see myself in them, the Sanhedrin. I see myself fearing man more than God. I see myself finding identity in man, in work, in my kids, in my spouse, more than in God. And we all had to come to the point of saying, I do not know. I cannot fix myself and rely solely on the grace of God to fix me, to sanctify me, to glorify me. And when we tell Jesus we don't know, we put the ball in his court. At this point, Jesus doesn't tell them by what authority he done has done these things. He doesn't explain to them the authority that he has, but he knows that he's going to make it clear soon. In just a week or so, this is going to lead up to the crucifixion of Jesus, the death, the burial, and ultimately the resurrection of Jesus. Showing, not having to say, showing his authority to all around. And so the same is for us today. Whether we submit to godly authority now, whether we admit that Jesus is who he says he is, or whether we let the fear of man, we find our identity in something else, control our outcome, we see throughout Scripture Just as the Sanhedrin one day will admit that Jesus has all authority, Scripture says that every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. So just like the Sanhedrin, out of fear of man, attempted to push off and ignore the authority of the Messiah, the question that we're asked is, are we doing the same? Matthew 28, verse 18 says, And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Jesus says here that all authority, not some, but all. And that authority, Jesus' next breath was to tell us to go into the Great Commission. So church, as we close this morning, as we see what Christ has done for us, as we see the authority that he has, the supreme authority, as we see throughout the entire book of Mark, his authority in teaching, his authority in able to forgive sins. And lastly, he gives us that authority in the Great Commission. Right? He says, by all the authority that I have, I now tell you guys to go. Go into Taze Valley, go into Milton, go into everywhere, and tell everybody of the gospel. And so let it. Let that be the driving force for us to honor God in sports, to honor God with our kids, to honor God in our work. Let everything we do, let us be successful at it. Let us try our hardest so that we can glorify God in it and find ways to utilize everything we do in our life for the gospel. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Make sure to check out Past Sermons on the app.